Hello, it's Jeremy Myers, and you are listening to the Redeeming God Podcast. So we're in this section on Ephesians, where Paul is telling us about how to grow the church in unity and love for one another. And the reason is because we are supposed to be an example to the rest of the world about how to do this. So if the church fails, then the world fails. And I think that is one of the primary reasons there is so much disunity and hatred and discord in the world today. It's because the church is doing a lousy job of showing the world how to live. So in today's study, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And we're going to see that God has given four spiritual gifts specifically to help lead the church into growth and maturity and unity and love for each other. That's where we're headed today. Now, I want to tell you that uh, this study and the next several studies that we're going to be looking at in Ephesians chapter 4 sort of form the backbone in my book, God's Blueprints for Church Growth. That actually is the very first book I ever wrote, really close to 20 years now, 20 years ago now, and uh, I'd never really got around to publishing it until uh, 2021 or 2020, anyway, in the last year or two. So uh, it's available on Amazon, God's Blueprints for Church Growth, and it's basically how to grow your church regardless of its size. And and if you know what I teach about church, you might be a little surprised by that title, Uh, but but trust me, what I write in there uh, fits exactly in line with everything I've taught elsewhere about the church and what I believe about the church. So anyway, if you don't know what I believe about the church, you're going to get some of it as we go through through these studies in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, so uh, that's where we're headed today and in the next several studies. And um, uh, let's let's dive in here. Uh, once upon a time, let me just start with a little story here. <laughs> in a local church, there were four people named everybody, somebody, anybody, and nobody. All right, there was an important job to be done and everybody was asked to do it. But everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. So then somebody got angry about it because it was everybody's job. But since everybody thought that anybody could do it, and nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it, it ended up that everybody blamed somebody, and nobody did the job that anybody could have done in the first place. Right about this time, a fifth person visited the church. This person's name was confused. He looked around, saw what was happening, and never came back. (laughs) Okay, sort of an ironic take on what often happens in most local church bodies. All right, it's a little unclear on who is supposed to do what, and everybody ends up blaming everybody else because everybody thinks somebody else was supposed to do what everybody was invited to do and nobody did. And uh, this leads to confusion, frustration, hurt feelings, disunity, right? Infighting, church splits, all sorts of things. And this is not the way church is supposed to be. God never intended the church to be confusing. God describes in great detail in Scripture who is to oversee the church, what the church is supposed to be doing and functioning, how the church is supposed to work. Uh, God carefully delineates in Scripture what the church is supposed to do. Okay, and God is the architect of the church. He created it. He designed it. He de- he determines what the church is supposed to be and look like and how it's supposed to function. And as a result, uh, we should listen to God's instructions. Sadly, most people don't realize that God has actually given us fairly clear instructions in Scripture on how the church is supposed to function. Okay, and one of the primary passages where God does this through the pen of Paul is here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, which we'll be looking at today and in the next several studies. Uh, this passage, Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, uh, describes so, sort of when I just said that God is the architect, sort of think of this, this construction site, uh, describes who the foremen are. That's what we're looking at today, the foremen of uh, God's construction site of the church. And there's uh, sort of a, a pun, four men, but there's four spiritual gifts. They're not all men, but uh, the four men are the people on a construction site. You know that. Okay, that's what we're looking at today. These are the ones who sort of guide and lead uh, the growth of the church into Christ-like maturity. 
After this, there is the crew. These are the people who really do the work of ministry. And this is discussed in Ephesians 4.12. We'll look at that next time. Then there's the construction model. These blueprints that God has provided that we are supposed to build uh, following the instructions to imitate and turn the blueprints into a reality. That's Ephesians 4.13. And then there's the program goal that uh, the church will fulfill once it is constructed. These are sort of the purposes and goals and functions that the church is supposed to accomplish. Okay, And this will bring us back to this idea of unity and love uh, that Paul is building on here in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay, When all these things are in place, the church becomes what God wants and desires for us. All right, so today's study is basically just going to look at the first part of this construction site, the foreman. If you know, if you've ever worked on a construction site or watched a movie that has a construction, or you just read anything, talked to anybody, everybody knows a little bit about construction. Every construction site has a foreman. Uh, these are the ones who make sure that everybody knows what they're supposed to do. They're sort of overseers of the site. Uh, They they give everybody instructions, and they make sure the task gets done right. They make sure the foundation is laid correctly, that the walls go up square, that the wiring and plumbing goes in correctly, that the work site is safe, that people show up for work, that they do their job, okay, that everything gets done in the right order and that the right people are doing the right job. You don't want the plumber doing the wiring, okay? So without the foreman, the construction site would be in chaos. And the same is the true for the church. There are four specific spiritual gifts that God has provided uh, to uh, for these people to be overseers or shepherds or guides, leaders of the church. And Ephesians 4.11 tells us what these four spiritual gifts are. Okay, now we're going to go through them one by one. And I want to tell you, though, if you do not have one of these four spiritual gifts, don't fret, don't worry, that's okay. Remember, and we'll be talking about this next week, uh, next study in Ephesians 4.12, and we saw it last time in our previous study, verses 7 through 10, that not everybody has the same spiritual gifts, and that's good. That's as intended. That's what God wants. And so if you don't have one of these four spiritual gifts, all that means is you have a different spiritual gift. You have a different function or goal or task that God has given to you. And if you want to know what that is, I invite you to take my online course about spiritual gifts if you're part of my discipleship group. If you're not, well, you can join the discipleship group and take that course at redeeminggod.com. Or you can buy my book on Amazon called What Are the Spiritual Gifts? And uh, it's a quick read, and it has a spiritual gift inventory, tells you what the gifts are, how to find your gifts, and how to use your gifts. Uh, Or you can do both. Get the book and join my discipleship group. Anyway, Ephesians 4.11 just mentions these four sort of leadership type of gifts in the church that help lead the church into what God wants and desires for us. Let me read the verse. It says this, Ephesians 4.11, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. All right, you might say, Jeremy, you need to go back to kindergarten, learn how to count. You said there's only four spiritual gifts in there, but I count five. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. That's five, Jeremy. Yeah, well, uh, in Greek, there's really only four. Most scholars agree that uh, this last set of terms, pastors and teachers, is really one gift called sort of pastor-teacher. That's why if you're familiar with some of the Bible churches around the country, around the world, some of the primary teaching pastors, their their sort of official title is pastor-teacher, pastor-teacher, or pastor-slash-teacher. And that's from this concept here in Ephesians 4.11. Pastor-teachers is not two different gifts, it's one gift called pastor-teachers, okay? So uh, they're sort of synonyms of each other, and we'll talk about that more today as we get to it. Let's just talk about these four spiritual gifts then. These four functions, these four leadership roles in the church, what they do and what they're for. All right, first is the apostles. Okay, you probably know something about apostles. We usually, when we think about apostles, we tend to think first of the 12 apostles, the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus in John chapter 6. Of course, Judas was originally one of the 12 apostles, but it appears that he was later uh, replaced by Matthias. In, uh, in Acts chapter 1, uh, because Judas betrayed Christ, so he can't really be an apostle anymore, right? Uh, but, but know that uh, the apostles wasn't, weren't limited to just 12. 
Paul was an apostle. He mentions that in Galatians 1 and 1 Corinthians 15, and he wasn't one of the original 12. Uh, Barnabas was an apostle. He's mentioned the, as an apostle in Acts 14, 14. There were two uh, members of the church in Rome who were called apostles. In, uh, you can read about them in Romans 16, 7. And one of them appears to be a woman. Okay, so we have these five additional apostles mentioned in Scripture. So with the original 12 plus these five additional, there's at least 17. Okay, and I guess if you count Judas, then there's there's 18. Um, but but so so there's not just 12 apostles, even though sometimes you hear people refer to that. There's more than that. Okay, so how many are there? Well, we don't really know. And depending on who you ask, you get different answers. For example, the Roman Catholic Church teaches what is something that's known as apostolic succession. So they believe that the apostles uh, were able to pass on their position of authority and leadership to other people. Okay? And so what this is usually done by the church. When an apostle, what they consider an apostle, dies, uh, you know, and they get this idea from from what happened with when Matthias replaced Judas in Acts 1, they, they teach that uh, the church can decide to pass that apostolic authority on to someone else. And of course, in, in, in accordance with this, they view the Pope as the succession of the Apostle Peter. So that's apostolic succession. The authority that Jesus gave to, to Peter has been passed down from generation to generation to uh, what pope after pope, okay? Now, the logical consequence of this in the Catholic Church is this thing called papal infallibility. Uh, I, I don't want to get into it too much, but basically Catholics teach that uh, since apostles have the authority to speak and write the Word of God, and since the pope, and especially the pope, is the successor of Peter, then anything the pope says or writes— when he's writing in apostolic authority, with his apostolic authority, that anything the Pope says under that authority is basically without error and is equal to written revelation in Scripture. Okay, and this has gotten the Catholic Church into some trouble over the years, but um, that's, you know, largely due to their their view on apostolic authority. And so Protestant churches criticize this and have have mocked it and tried to refute it over the years, and I agree. I, I don't think we should go with apostolic authority. The problem is apostles are, I'm sorry, Protestants have their own form of apostolic authority. Um, some, some churches, like some of the more Pentecostal churches, you will have even literal uh, positions where they called are called apostles, okay? And maybe you've even seen that movie called The Apostle with Robert Duvall in it. And But that sort of thing happens in some Pentecostal-style churches. But even then, in some of the more Bible churches and, and more evangelical churches, you'll have uh, pastors that sometimes often seem to speak, at least the way their, their listeners and audience view them, as divine revelation from God. Oh, well, um, just to give one example, John MacArthur said, you know, and, and whatever John MacArthur says, that's what people believe is what scripture teaches. And so it becomes not so much what does the Bible say, but it becomes what does John MacArthur say the Bible says, okay? And so people tend to, it's it's very similar to apostolic succession, um, where they, they, they believe what John MacArthur says um, as the accurate and infallible almost representation of what the Bible says, okay? Now they, John MacArthur would be uncomfortable with that, and for good reason, he would not like that some of his his lead, his followers say those sorts of things or believe that. Okay, but nevertheless, that is what happens. And so anyway, we have this, even in quote-unquote Protestant tradition, we have sort of our own version of apostolic authority. I don't want to get into who's right and who's wrong and all this. Let's just sort of back up and talk about what makes an apostle, who are apostles, and whether or not there are apostles today. All right, the term apostle is one of those... English words that has not been properly translated from Greek. And here, here's the beginning of the problem, okay? In fact, uh, there are three of these words here, apostle, prophet, and evangelist. There's these, 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 these four foremen here in Ephesians 4.11, and we have problems with the first three of them in that 
the Bible translators chose not to translate them from Greek. Instead, what they did is they transliterated them. There's a difference. So if you know anything about Greek, then um, you know that uh, sometimes words do not get translated. They just, the, the Greek letters get changed into English letters and written down. So for example, the Greek word for apostle is apostolos. So you can hear it. <laughs> uh, they didn't translate the, the Greek word apostolos. They just changed the Greek letters into English letters and left it. So apostolos becomes apostle and, the, and they leave it in there. So the, when this happens, there's lots of words in the Bible that this is, happens to, like baptism is another one. It's helpful to actually translate the word itself. Rather than transliterate it, it's helpful to translate it and then, based on that translation, uh, come to an understanding of what the word means. So what does the word apostolos or apostle means? Well, it means messenger or delegate, okay? So the apostles... I think we can, it's it's safe to think of them as a special class of believers or special people with spiritual gifts who are chosen by God. Every person who has a spiritual gift is chosen by God to carry out a certain task. And so that's true of apostles as well. They are chosen by God to carry out a specific task. And what is that task? To be a messenger, to deliver a specific message. They are a delegate, okay, to carry a message to the world. Now, obviously, there, there's probably different types of apostles who are sent to perform or deliver different tasks, different messages. Um, Jesus referred to himself as one who was sent from God. Uh, that's in John 17, 18 and 20, 21. Okay, so in a, in a way, Jesus is a delegate, a messenger from God to us. In that sense, you could almost refer to Jesus, never referred to specifically this way, but you could almost refer to Jesus as an apostle of God. Okay, one sent from God with a message. And apostles then are apostles of Jesus Christ, those who are sent from Jesus with a message. All right, so um, that's what uh, apostle means. In Scripture, it appears that there are three specific um, conditions for becoming an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, first of all, the Bible tells us that an apostle of Jesus Christ must have had personal contact with Jesus. We read this in Acts 1.8 and uh, verses 21 and 23 as well. Okay, personal contact with Jesus. Now, this, of course, immediately eliminates everyone born after 33 AD because there was no way for them to have personal contact with Jesus. You might say, what about Paul? Paul never had personal contact with Jesus. Well, some speculate that he did. Some believe that the rich young ruler in Matthew 19 and Luke 18 might have been Paul himself. We don't know that for sure. It's pure speculation. Uh, but regardless, Paul did have personal contact with Jesus on the road to Damascus in Acts 9. And it wasn't physical personal contact. But it was personal contact, and so th uh, that's probably why Paul refers to himself as apostle abnormally born. This is not the normal way of becoming an apostle. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. Okay, so um, there's that. Now, there were thousands of people who had personal contact with Jesus, tens of thousands of people during his, his ministry on earth, and not all of them are apostles, obviously. So this brings in the second qualification— an apostle must have personally seen the resurrected Jesus Christ. Uh, we read about this in Acts 1, 21 22, Luke 24, 48, other places as well. And, and obviously that narrows the number of people down to just about a couple of hundred people. Third qualification then narrows it down to just a select few. The final element, the third element to becoming an apostle of Jesus Christ, is that a person must have received a direct appointment to the office by Jesus Christ himself. Okay, Jesus Christ hand-picked his apostles. And we see that in John 6, 70. All right, so these three requirements, to me, indicate that the office of apostle of Jesus Christ, okay, hear me very clearly, the office of apostle of Jesus Christ cannot exist today. 
because nobody can fulfill those three requirements. Okay? The office of apostle of Jesus Christ. I am not saying there cannot be people today with the spiritual gift of apostleship. You understand the difference? There's a difference between those who have the spiritual gift of apostleship and those who are or have the office of apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay? So um, to, to understand the difference, it might help you understand what apostles do. All right. The word apostle, remember, means sent one or delicate, uh, messenger, something like that. So the church can send out apostles, can't we? Anyone that the church sends out with a message for somebody else is technically an apostle. They'd be an apostle of the church rather than an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see what I mean? Uh, the apostle of Jesus Christ is an office, but the apostle of the church is, is an office of the church, someone who is sent out by the church, a delegate of the church to go somewhere with a, a particular message. And uh, we see various instances of these types of apostles elsewhere in the New Testament. Usually, they're called by God or by the church, and they're sent out to an unreached people group with the message of the gospel. All right? Uh, I think that the other apostles in Scripture would fall into this category. And I think Barnabas, for example, and maybe these two apostles mentioned in Romans chapter 16, are of these type of apostles. Uh, they are sent ones, and they are sent out by the church. They were not specifically sent out by Jesus himself, not handpicked by Jesus himself. So we would call them apostles of the church, but not necessarily apostles of Jesus Christ. Okay? And uh, usually they are sent out to unreached people groups, at least in Scripture. So I, maybe, and this is sort of my view on this, I think it is best to think of apostles or the spiritual gift of apostles as missionaries. Missionaries, if you think about it, missionaries are chosen and sent out by the church to carry a specific message to specific groups of people, and often to unreached people groups, but not always. Okay, so are there apostles today? In my view, the answer is yes, there are. They do not speak with infallible authority, the way the Catholic Church says, okay? Uh, but they do speak with the authority of the church and the, in, in, concerning the message that they are sent uh, to, to deliver to other people groups, unreached people groups, or just people who, who need to hear more about Jesus Christ, okay? And we would not—I do not think it's helpful to refer to them as apostles today because that is confusing— I think it's much healthier and much more helpful to refer to them as missionaries. Okay? Now, the thing is, is Paul is not referring to the missionary apostle in Ephesians 4.11. Okay, we've gone all of this, and now we're saying, okay, fine, but what is Paul referring to here in Ephesians 4.11? Here in Ephesians 4.11, although Paul only refers to apostles, I do believe he has in mind the apostles of Jesus Christ, okay? There are apostles today, as there have been throughout church history, but I do not think that this is what Paul has in mind here in Ephesians 4.11. In the context, look at Ephesians 3.5, he refers to the holy apostles. I think this is a reference to those, uh, those apostles who were called and sent out by Jesus Christ, Okay, to lay the foundation of the church by teaching and writing about Jesus Christ and the gospel. Okay, so, um, and I think one of the reasons I hold to this view is because we're what we're going to learn about the word prophets next. Okay, so uh, these apostles in Ephesians 4.11, I do believe, are the apostles of Jesus Christ. There are apostles today. That's not what Paul's referring to here. These are the apostles of Jesus Christ, those specifically appointed by Jesus to the office of apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay? Uh, hopefully all that makes sense. Now, why do I say that? Well, it's because these apostles, the ones appointed by Jesus, the apostles of Jesus Christ, uh, they carried out a very specific task regarding the church. All right? After Jesus died, rose, and ascended, these apostles of Jesus Christ, they traveled around and they teach, taught others about Jesus and the kingdom of God, which he inaugurated, which began with Jesus. Uh, 
Now, they expected Jesus Christ to return during their lifetime. It's very pretty evident from most of their writings and teachings that they believed Jesus would return before they died. They hoped that the second coming of Jesus Christ would re- would occur, you know, within a couple of years or maybe at most a couple of decades. Okay? The problem is it didn't. The years went by and Jesus did not return. The apostles aged, some of them died, and they began to realize that the task of spreading the gospel to the entire world was going to take more than just their lifetimes. All right? And so it was unlikely that Jesus would return before they died. And so what did they do? They set out to, and some of their followers did this as well, such as Luke and others, to write down with pen and paper the message of the apostles of Jesus Christ. And where do we find these writings? They are found in the writings of the New Testament. All right, the apostles of Jesus received, declared, and recorded God's written word, and we now have their testimony, their written testimony, in the New Testament. Okay? All of this is to say, when Paul is writing here in Ephesians 4.11 about the apostles, he's, it's a way, a shorthand way of saying the message of the apostles of Jesus Christ, which I think, uh, which, which is found in the New Testament. The New Testament wasn't finished when Paul was writing this, but, uh, and he wouldn't even known what the New Testament was, because it wasn't really put into its form until many uh, centuries later, but uh, until its modern form, until many centuries later. But he did know, and he was one of them, who was writing the message of the Apostle in letters and other documents, such as the Gospels. And um, one of his followers, Luke, was, was uh, interviewing and recording many of these things as well, okay, in Luke and Acts. And so Paul would have known that the message of the apostles was getting written and recorded down, and that's what he's referring to here. Okay, this brings us to this, this second key foreman title here, which is prophets. And just to tip my hand here, if apostles is referring to the writings of the New Testament, I'm saying that prophets refers to the writings of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Okay, but before we get to that, let's sort of build up to it. Again, prophet is another word that has not been translated. It's been transliterated. The Greek word is prophetes. You can hear it. The English word is prophet. Greek word prophetes. They didn't translate it. They transliterated. They changed the Greek words into English, the Greek letters into English letters. What does it mean? All right. Well, the word prophetes refers to someone who, guess what, declares a message from God. It's very, very similar to the word apostle. Um. The thing is, here's the difference. Prophets were not sent to other people or regions. Uh, Occasionally they were, such as like with Jonah. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. But usually, most often, prophets were sent by God with a message to their own people. Okay, In the Hebrew scriptures, usually, primarily, almost always, to the people of Israel themselves. All right, they usually stayed in their home region and they declared God's message to their own people rather than to some other people group. All right? Now, there were two types of messages that a prophet would declare. There were two facets. We could call it prophecy, two types of prophecy. Uh, most people, when they think of a prophet, they just think of someone who's predicting the future, foretelling future events. Okay, and that's one thing prophets did do. But did you know that was not the primary message of a prophet? Uh, in fact, foretelling the future, predicting the future, was what prophets did to verify that their main message was true. Prophets were sent with a primary main message, which is what most of the Old Testament is. And when people say, well, how do we know you're telling the truth? How do we know you're really speaking with the authority of God? That's when the prophets would make predictions. Say, well, you can know because here I'm going to predict the future. God has revealed to me what's going to happen. And when this happens, then you will know that my other message, what I'm saying about what you should do, that also has divine authority. Okay, so this other type of message is we could call it forth telling. F-O-R-T-H, forth-telling, all right? If, if predicting the future is foretelling, right? Telling, predicting, foretelling what is about to happen, then uh, proclaiming a message to God from God to the people is forth 
telling. And so there's foretelling and foretelling. Most of what the prophets did is that foretelling. And we would we would uh, think of it today as sort of preaching, declaration. It was a call to repentance, usually. Usually the prophet would come to the people and say, look, <laughs> here's what God wants you to do, and here's what you're doing, which is the exact opposite. So repent, do something, obey God instead. And you even think of Jonah. He was sent to the people of Nineveh. And that was his message. Repent. Uh, and you look at most of the messages of all of the prophets in Scripture, starting with Moses, going all the way through to the end of the Old Testament, and that is their primary message. Repent. God gave you instructions. You're not following them. Fix it, or you're going to suffer the consequences. All right? So uh, that's, that's uh, what the prophets did. Now, are there prophets today? Okay, well, the short answer, just like with apostles, the short answer is yes, but not in the same way that many assume, okay? There are people today who have the spiritual gift of prophecy, just like there are people today who have the spiritual gift of apostleship. That's my view. Some people disagree, but that's my view. However, I differentiate between, just like, just like I differentiate between the apostles of Jesus Christ, it's an office, it's a title, Versus those who have the spiritual gift of apostleship today. There are missionaries who are sent to other people group by the church. They're apostles of the church. Okay, I take the same view with prophets. There are people who have the spiritual gift of prophecy today. Um, but they primarily are, primarily are going to focus on foretelling. And uh, what they're going to do is they're going to see how the church, the people of God, are not following God's instructions, God's will, God's desires for the church, and they are going to call the church to repent, to change, to uh, stop what they're doing and make a 180-degree turn and go the other way in following God, in doing God's will, in conforming to what um, God wants for the church, okay? So, um, very often when I fill out spiritual gift inventories, I Prophecy ends up near the top of my list. I've never predicted the future. I have no desire to try to predict the future. That's not my goal. Um, but I do believe that God has given me a task, and that's one of the reasons I write my books and teach this podcast is because I want to call the church back to what God wants for it. And that's what I try to do. Uh, the church has strayed in God's task, God's will, God's desires. And that's why the church is failing, and that's why the world is in the condition it's in. So I'm a prophet. I have, I'm speaking prophecy to you right now, <laughs> okay? Am I predicting the future? I am not, because that's not what apostles do today. I'm sorry, that's not what prophets do today, okay? So, um, now that's not what, again, that's not what Paul is referring to here. Just as the apostles is referring to the apostles who wrote and were writing at his time, the New Testament, the, the, the written revelation about Jesus Christ, the prophets uh, here in Paul's thinking, is referring to the writings of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. The prophets refers to the writings of the Hebrew prophets. You can see that in 2 Peter 3, 2. And uh, basically everything that is written to prepare people for the coming of Jesus Christ. Okay, so we have apostles, we have prophets. What is Paul talking about? He's talking about the, the central role of scripture in the life of the church. That's what, that's what these first two terms are referring to, the New Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. No work that the church does can be successful in the eyes of God if it is not built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which, of course, was built upon Jesus Christ himself. Everything points to Jesus and draws people to Jesus, all of the writings of Scripture. Okay, but when we want, if we want to read and learn about him within Scripture, then then we do that by looking at the writings of the apostles and prophets, and that's why I'm convinced, and that's why I do it in my own reading and writing and teaching here. There must be a large emphasis in the church on the Word of God, the written Word of God, uh, which we call the Scripture or the Bible. Okay, and by doing so, the church is building on the foundation of Jesus Christ which we learn about from the apostles and prophets, the writings of the apostles and prophets. And that is the good and solid foundation upon which we build. And that's why, 
Um, often the church today seems directionless and rudderless, blowing this way and that way with every wind of culture that, that blows it around is because there is no good solid foundation on the divine inerrant word of God. Okay, so, so that's, that's what Paul is talking about here. Just a personal example. Years ago, I worked at a Bible camp, summer Bible camp. I was a counselor, and then eventually I was the director of these camps. The camp was located on a lake, and uh, about, well, maybe 60, 70 years ago now, when the, when the camp first began, they built a kitchen and a dining hall, and they built it, they thought it would be nice to build it right on the shore. Sort of, in fact, part of the building was out in the water on these little posts that they buried into, into, into the dirt under the water. And uh, it, honestly, it was a gorgeous location, gorgeous view. You'd sit there and you'd eat and you could look out over the lake. And uh, many years I worked in the kitchen there. And it was actually very pleasant to work in the kitchen because you're right on the lake and you could look out over the water as you're washing the dishes or preparing your food. And it really was glorious. And I have many, many fond memories of eating my meals while listening to the waves lapping on the foundation of that building. Okay. But what happened over time is the shore of that lake slowly eroded. That's what happens in lakes. And as a result, it undermined the foundation of that building and the building started to lean and crumble and started to fall into the, the lake, okay? But the, the problem is the eroding lakeshore wasn't all to blame. People build buildings on the shores of lakes all the time. The real problem wasn't so much the lake, it was the foundation itself. 70, 80 years ago, they had relied solely on volunteer labor, and uh, they didn't dig the foundation hole deep enough. They didn't pour enough concrete. They didn't really use enough rebar to support the foundation. The pylons that they, they, they drilled or, or pounded down into the, uh, the dirt out in the water didn't go deep enough, weren't on concrete themselves. Okay. As a result, very large cracks eventually formed in this foundation as the shore shifted and as the water and waves beat against the concrete. Okay. And eventually they had to tear down that beautiful building because it became unsafe for people to, to, to eat in or to work in. That's what happens when the church tries to build its foundation on anything other than the writings of the apostles and prophets, or when we don't do a good job of it. We sort of do it, but not really, uh, sort of, we give it lip service. Oh yeah, we believe the Bible, but then you go off and, and do all other sorts of things. Okay. The, the prophets laid the foundation that, uh, that we find in the old Testament and the apostles built on that foundation that we uh, find in the new Testament and the church. We must, if we're going to be a solid, strong foundation for people to live in safely and grow in securely, then we need to be built on that solid foundation found in the writings of the apostles and prophets. Okay. And if we don't, then the building is going to crumble and people are going to suffer and uh, eventually the building will get torn down. Okay, that's the apostles and prophets. So is there anything referring to people who actually have gifts today? Sure, now we get into the evangelists and the pastor teachers. Uh, the evangelists. All right, well, guess what? Evangelists also is not a translation. It is another transliteration. The Greek word is euangelistes. Uh, and the e... E-U, the upsilon there becomes a V in English, and so euangelistes becomes evangelists, evangel evangelists, okay? And that's what we have here. Um, in my opinion, I've written elsewhere on this. I think the best translation for this might be gospelists, okay? And the reason is because the, the Greek word for gospel is euangelion. Now, you can hear this similar between euangelion and euangelistes. Euangelistes is somebody who shares the euangelion. They are sent with the message of the euangelion. Okay, so if we translate euangelion as gospel, then maybe we should translate euangelistes as gospelists, someone who spreads the gospel. I don't know, sort of just my opinion on this, but uh, that's really what the meaning uh, of euangelistes is. Someone who spreads the gospel, teaches the gospel, shares the gospel uh, through their words and through their actions. Okay? 
if that gospelist, you know, it's always difficult to coin a term and have it take root in culture and society, especially in the church. So we could also just call them a disciple maker. All right. It's not wrong to think of an evangelist as a disciple maker. And that might surprise you because again, in the church, when you think of an evangelist, what do you think of? Yeah. You think of somebody who's going door to door and handing out tracts. You think of somebody who stands on a street corner up on a milk crate and shouts into a bullhorn, or maybe you think of somebody like Billy Graham who, you know, has these, these crusades, these evangelism crusades where tens of thousand people come and hear him speak and present the gospel to them. And then he goes off to another city to do the same thing there. Now, in all of those scenarios, is there much discipleship going on? There isn't. There's just a declaration, an invitation of the gospel. So, hey, here's the gospel and an invitation to believe in Jesus for eternal life. And then they move on. And that's not discipleship, is it? But I think that a true evangelist, as you study the way it is used in Scripture, especially in reference to the word gospel, a true evangelist is a disciple maker, someone who presents, yes, the offer of eternal life, but then also moves on from there to tell the new believer how to grow up in the gospel and mature in the gospel. I think it's a great problem with much of modern evangelism that all they do is present the the bare bones, basic first part of the gospel. Hey, believe in Jesus for eternal life. Okay. And then people do. And then they're like, okay, thumbs up, good luck, have fun. And they move on. And, And that causes great shallowness and weakness in the church at large. It'd be much better for evangelists to stay in an area and develop relationships with the people that they share the gospel with, the the good news of of eternal life through Jesus with, and then uh, uh, transition from helping people become believers to growing up in the faith as believers. They would literally become disciples. They not just share the gospel with words, but then they show them how to live the gospel with their actions. That's true discipleship, and that's what true evangelists should be. And so you see how this follows on the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. Okay, The evangelists take the foundation that was poured by the apostles and prophets, and they prepare to build on this foundation. They're bringing in building resources to to the construction site. They're bringing in the nails and the two-by-fours. All of these are people, right? They're, They're bringing people into the church, making sure they are sound and solid, and well-prepared, and of good materials. You see how this is working? The, the, the apostles and the prophets, they poured the concrete foundation. The evangelists now are bringing in the building resources to construct the building. Okay, you can't build anything if there's no resources to build with. All right, so, so that's how the evangelists work. All right, and then we come to the fourth of these spiritual gifts here, the pastor-teacher. Again, just to reiterate, this is one term in the Greek. Yes, it's, it's, it's two different words, but the Greek construction here uh, with, with the different um, uh, the words here just indicate that it's, that it's one spiritual gift, pastor, teacher, okay? So um, the pastor, that is a teacher. You could translate it that way as well. And pastor, of course, is a, is a word for shepherd. And Paul is specifically saying, and shepherds are supposed to fulfill their task by teaching. That is by feeding the sheep. All right. So, um, and how do they do that? By imparting information to others. And um, the the Greek word for pastor is poimenos. And uh, it it can mean shepherd, shepherd teachers. Sometimes you'll even hear churches refer to their pastor as the shepherd, shepherd of the flock of God. And if you've ever read Philip Keller's book on A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, it's a great book, but he points out the primary task of a shepherd is providing nourishment for his sheep and protection for his sheep. Those are the two tasks of a shepherd, uh, leading them to green pastures and, and water where they can drink from, and then also protecting them from lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Okay, so um, The pastor shepherds the flock, and they do this primarily through teaching. That's what Paul is saying here. How does a pastor shepherd the flock? By teaching them. Uh, Teaching them what? (laughs) Well, how about what the, the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets that Paul has already talked about here? 
and not only teaching them, but then partnering with the evangelists to apply it to their lives and show them how to practice and live what they have been taught. That's what a shepherd does. And in so doing, they are feeding them, helping them grow stronger and nourished from the meat of Scripture, but then also protecting them from the lies and deceits of the devil and from the things that want to lead them astray into sin and temptation, okay? Protecting them from these, these things that want to, to take them away from the flock and kill them. So, so that is the, the pastor teacher, the pastor who leads, protects, and provides by teaching the Word of God. By the way, when I do the spiritual gift inventories, usually prophet and pastor teacher come up as the top two of my spiritual gifts. Again, that's why I teach and write what I do, because I'm trying to fulfill my God-given task that uh, he's given to me for the church. So what do we have here then? We have the apostles and prophets. They poured the foundation by writing the written, inspired, inerrant revelation of God, which we know of as the Bible. And uh, the evangelists then, they are sent with a message similar to prophets and apostles, but they declare it, uh, the message to to people, and invite them to believe in Jesus, and then train them up, disciple them to become solid resources for the building. The pastor teacher then explains the scripture through teaching about, uh, you know, book by book, verse by verse is, is my preferred way of doing that. I've, it, I feel like it makes the most sense to help people understand the overall thought, flow, and structure of a, per, a certain book of the Bible. And the pastor teacher guides and protects the people so that they can begin to come together in a logical way. A pile of building materials is no good to anybody. You have to do to measure the planks and put the nails in the right spot and build the walls in a way that they're not going to tumble down, but instead support one another, okay? That's one of the tasks of the pastor teachers, to put all the pieces together in a way that makes sense and logical and supports the entire whole of the church building. And by building, I mean people not the brick building down in the corner of Maine and Elm. As you know, I believe the church is not a building. The church is the people of God. So uh, the pastor's teacher's job then is vitally important, isn't it? Uh, Again, if the pastor teacher fails to teach people about God's word, about God's will in God's word, then what happens? The building, the people of God, are never going to be built up into anything. They're just, it's just going to be chaos all the time because although they've been brought into the church by the evangelists, and although they have the written revelation of the apostles and prophets in Scripture, they don't know what to do with it. They don't know where to go. They don't know how to put together, how all the pieces fit together into one uh, major building of God, the people of God. And so they're, they're directionless. And um, nothing ever ends up happening that makes any sense. Okay? So the pastor teacher's job is to put it all together and tell the people how they fit together and how they function as God wants and desires. This is why I believe that much of the blame for the sickly condition of Christianity today can be laid at those who call themselves pastors, uh, the leaders of the church. Okay? Bruce Wilkinson, if you ever read his book, The Seven Laws of the Learner, he says that if the students of a teacher are failing to learn, it's because the teacher is failing to teach. Christianity Today, many have pointed out, is a mile wide and an inch deep. There's no maturity. There's no growth or development. There's chaos. There's, it's just, it's just insane out there. And whose fault would that be? Well, if Bruce Wilkinson is right, it's the fault of the pastors because uh, lots of pastors view themselves as counselors. Nothing wrong with being a counselor, but that's not the role of the pastor. Lots of pastors view themselves as leaders. Nothing wrong with being a leader. We need leaders in the church, um, but that's not the primary role of the pastor. Lots of pastors view themselves sometimes as entertainers. (laughs) Nothing wrong with being entertained. We all like to laugh. We all like joy. We all like singing and music. And hey, 
stories, but but that's not the job of the pastor. The pastor is to teach people the Word of God so that they know what they're supposed to do and how they fit together for the overall plan and purpose of the church. The pastor is to teach. You don't, don't divide those terms because then the pastor can end up being anything he wants and the teacher is something else, okay? So you need to keep the terms pastor-teacher together as Paul intended for this very reason. Okay, so look, those are the four foremen of the church. We're talking about how God wants his church to grow and be built so that we can become uh, uh, unified and loving and grow into Christ-like maturity. And it all begins with these four, yes, they're leaders, these four primary spiritual gifts for church growth. doesn't mean they're the most important spiritual gifts. No, not at all. All the gifts are equally important. All are necessary. We all depend on everybody else. But these are the four that help the church grow into unity and love and maturity, which is what Paul is talking about here. Other spiritual gifts have other purposes, very important purposes. But since we're talking about God's goal for the church to teach the world how to live in unity and love for one another, well, these are the gifts that God has given to the church to help the church do this so that we can show the world how to do this as well. The apostles and prophets, they wrote scripture. The evangelists, they share the gospel and disciple people in the gospel so that building resources can come into the church. And then the pastor teacher teaches these resources, the people, how they all fit together into one unified whole, to one purpose uh, for the church. Okay? And uh, that's why these four foremen on the construction site of God's church are so important for the church. Now, you might say, fine, Jeremy, but I'm not an apostle, prophet, evangelist, or pastor teacher. What's my role? Ah, well, guess what? That's where we're headed next time in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. And you'll be very shocked. It goes against much of what the church teaches about the role of the average, quote-unquote, person in the pew. Okay? That's where we're headed next time. Ephesians 4.12. Don't miss it. We'll see you then. Again, remember, if you uh, want to get a head start on all of this and read it, plus a bunch of other things about what the church is and how the church functions, you can get my book, God's Blueprints for Church Growth. Available on Amazon or pretty much anywhere books are sold. Okay? Hey, thanks for listening today. Join me next time when we pick back up in Ephesians 4.12.